It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We made this. Welcome back, everybody, to the Movie Palace. I'm your host, Carl Sweeney, and thank you very much for joining me. This is the first new episode in several months. Um, glad to be back. I think, in short, the national lockdown over here in the UK made it kind of tricky to record stuff with things like my kids being home from school. But as we record, uh, we're several stages into the unlocking, so I'm happy to be back on the air. And I, w- I wanted to cover a big film for the first podcast back and i think we are covering one of the biggest i think it's fair to say today's film is the sound of music and i'm in, i'm joined by two guests um who i've podcasted with many times before mainly on the xcast podcast uh so sarah blair and marlene stemmy hi both hello hey carl actually both movie palace guests in the past i should say because i think sarah you and i we've talked to julie andrews before haven't we and so it was mary poppins uh yes with tony before. good times that was yeah. a lot of fun you know i'm a big julie andrews fan Yep. Marlene, it was Psycho, wasn't it? Um, mm-hmm. it supporting was... characters in Psycho last summer. Yes. And it was you, me, and Tony on that one. So it's good to be back with you both on the Movie Palace. Um, I think you're both super fans of this film, I think it's fair to say. So I'm looking forward to hearing um, your thoughts on it. Before we get into the film, actually, I think it might be good to tee this up a little bit, because The Sound of Music, of course, wasn't um, a film originally. Do either of you know much about the stage show, The Sound of Music? I don't know if you've encountered much about it and the stuff you've been looking at or reading? I've read a little bit about it, um, mainly that the, so the real Maria Von Trapp had written a book about her family's life and so forth, Story of the Trapp Family Singers, and auctioned the rights to a German film company that made a movie from it. And then I believe someone at Paramount that was a director, I'm not positive on the studio, had seen it and recommended it to Mary Martin as something that would be a good vehicle for her. And then she took it to Rogers and Hammerstein, 
who then sort of created what we think of now as, you know, the sound of music with the songs and so forth for the musical production. And from what I've heard about the music, the musical, Broadway musical, I mean, it was obviously a success, you know, and led into the movie and so forth. But I've really made more, learned more differences between the the musical and then the movie and how they switched things around, made the movie a little more narrative, a little more focused on the character arcs um, and not just like song, 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 a little bit of dialogue and song and so forth. Um, But in terms of the the musical itself, I I haven't, I've never seen a rendition of it. So I don't really, you know, have a good sense other than the things I've read about the the history of it. Yeah. I should say, by the way, we are planning to talk about uh, the real history of the Von Trapps after we come onto the film. So we'll be coming onto some of that. Yeah, what I've heard about the stage show is apparently the score came very easily for the most part, apart from, I think it's the preludium uh, section, which I think is the church music near the beginning. I think apparently that was the first time Richard Rogers did musical research in his life, because he felt if it was badly done, that could give offence. So he paid particular attention to that. On stage, one thing that interested me was that the young uh, Rolf was played at one point by young John Voigt, which I thought oh. was interesting. Uh, not the first actor to play the role, but uh, came came on later. I think Rogers and Hammerstein were known for sort of shaking up musical conventions because they felt like the integration of music and text needed to be sort of paramount. They, their feeling was the lyrics should determine the form of their songs. And with this particular show, they dispense with tradition by only adding a couple of new songs in the second act. And most of the music you hear in the second part of the play is reprised, isn't it? Which was interesting about the film as well. Um, it's kind of a poignant story because as they started rehearsing, Oscar Hammerstein went into hospital. Uh, had a very malignant form of cancer he had no chance of recovering from. So Idlevice was the last song he ever wrote. Um, he died in August 1960. And that, that night, the lights of every theatre on Broadway and in London were dimmed for three minutes in tribute. And that was apparently the first such tribute of its kind. Um but yeah, Sarah, have you heard anything about the Sound of Music stage show? Because it's interesting that it ran for like years, apparently, um, like a really big success. You know? Yeah. Um, in Julie Andrews' book, I've been reading her memoir, Homework, and she says that she had seen the Sound of Music on Broadway and she liked the music, but she thought the stage show was rather saccharine. <laughs> and she actually did a spoof. <laughs> with Carol Burnett called the Pratt Family Singers in 1962. And I looked it up and it's very funny and adorable. So you can see that on YouTube. Ah, I had heard about that, actually. That's good to know. Um, we might return to this idea of it being saccharine, because I think it's a common criticism that's been leveled at uh, the film in particular. But I know Oscar Hammerstein on sentiment, on the issue of sentiment, he said, sentiment has never been unpopular except with a few sick persons who are made sicker by the sight of a child, a glimpse of a wedding, or the thought of a happy home. Uh, and Richard Rogers said, most of us feel that nature can have attractive manifestations, that children aren't necessarily monsters, and that deep affection between two people is nothing to be ashamed of. I feel that rather strongly, or obviously, it would not be possible for me to write the music that goes with Oscar's words. And apparently Rogers was also apparently uh, fond of saying that the only smart people in show business were the audiences, which I think brings us nicely onto The Sound of Music, the film, one of the biggest kind of audience pleasers of all time. Yeah. What are your, for, for both of you, what's your personal history of this film? Is this a film you've seen many, many times? And I'm asking that question. I think I know the answer, but Marlene, how about you? <laughs> um, well, first, can I mention the saccharine part of the, address yeah. that? Because I think that I don't care for saccharine things just as or musicals either. So this is my favorite movie nonetheless. I think that, you know, they tried to 
Julie Andrews talks about how she and Christopher Plummer and the director, Robert Wise, tried to kind of take some of that saccharine tone out of it, which I, I think is like a, another interesting discussion point, you know, that maybe we'll come to a little bit more. But I first saw the movie, as I remember, I first saw it when I was five. My mother showed it to me one time when it was on TV and we had... I mean, I'm sure it was like a small black and white TV. So, you know, but I was captivated by it then. And I remember either in that viewing or other viewings when I was, you know, pretty young, some of the, I remember my mom explaining some of the Nazi scenes to me. And I found that interesting. I found it interesting that she was explaining it to me when I was that young. But then also I just, it's sort of stuck with me. And I, I, I just think I look now back on it all these years later and see ways that it could have influenced my thinking about the world um, to having seen it when I was so little, even though, I mean, most of it was just sort of like the fun and the adventure. Um, and yeah. some of the religious themes I've always found really interesting and meaningful. And I remember particular, other than that first time seeing it, I remember one time when I was at a friend's birthday party and the party was supposed to end at eight and the sound of music was coming on at eight <laughs> and my mom and I like racing home and I got home just in time for like when Maria met the kids, you know, so they were just very particular memories. My dad took me to see it when I was 10 at the Fox theater, which is a theater in Atlanta um, where they have, you know, stage performances and sometimes show classic films and so forth. And then I don't remember that many viewings. I remember a few viewings when I was an adult and I, you know, some of them, like when I was in college, I, you know, came on TV around Easter time and I remember watching it with some people and I enjoyed it. We kind of poked fun at it as well. And that's part of the beauty of it is I think there are moments that you can say like, well, this is a bit silly, but I don't really think there are that many of them looking back. And then I had this sort of watershed viewing last Easter. We were, you know, um, shut down here in America as well. I was going to go to a friend's house with her family for Easter and we weren't able to do that. So I decided, well, I'm going to watch The Sound of Music. And I watched the like the full release, because, you know, all the times when it comes on TV, they do have to cut a good bit of it out um, for commercial time and so forth. And there were just parts of it that I hadn't remembered before. Some of the parts about the political um, scene in Austria at the time, which, of course, I knew more about than I did when I was five <laughs> watching it, you know, not really probably understanding exactly what like the Angelus was, for example, um, that I really figured out sort of why I'd always liked it, but sort of more specifically... Um, just like sort of the defiance of the family and the, you know, the way that they were able to be these independent minded people. Um, and then the choice they made to leave their homeland and things like that were very striking to me. And I realized that there was a lot more character development in the dialogue and in the script um, that I'd probably paid attention to before. So there's that. And then I watched it for our podcast last Saturday. And I think that I was also, I was captivated by all of that, but I think I also paid more attention to the romance aspect of it because I'm honestly not a big fan of like love scenes in movies, things of that sort. But I think there's a way that it's played that's, um, I don't know, it's it's very romantic, but there's also sort of a reserve to it or mm. I don't know what it is, but I found that appealing this time as well. So I just, I think that I noticed different things on each viewing and yet it's still kind of a fun adventure at the same time. It's interesting what you say about it being cut down for TV broadcast. Because I think over here, I've only ever known it to be broadcast on the BBC, which is, so it airs without commercials and it airs in full. So I'd be curious to know exactly what they cut out for American uh, TV scheduling, you know. Sarah, how about you? I think you're more into romance than Marlene, perhaps. Is that fair? <laughs> yes. And what's your history with the film? Yes. Um, 
like Marlene, I used to watch it with my mom. She would always tell me, you know, I saw this in the theater and it's so good. And she really loved Maria as a character, I think, because she loved children and she was a second grade teacher for, you know, 10 years. And she just really loved being around children. And she kind of maybe saw herself as Maria a little bit, I think. And so, yeah, we would always make sure to watch it when it was on TV because that was, you know, before VCRs and all that. That was it. Yeah. Yeah. You could only watch it. If you missed it, you missed it. And so it was an event at our house whenever it would come on TV, like around Easter, you know, we're like, okay, it's coming on this day, this time. And we would be there with popcorn watching The Sound of Music. So it was always a big deal and we never wanted to miss it. I remember one time, I think we were house sitting for somebody and we had to go feed the cats or something. And we were like, you know, like Marlene racing home from the party. <laughs> we're like, we got to get there <laughs> between commercial. It wasn't very far. So we were trying to get there between commercial breaks. And, you know, so, yeah, it was. it's just always been in my mind like that. And I think the at the beginning, I really enjoyed the musical part of it. I loved the songs and the dancing and I liked my favorite things and the goat herd song. And then as I got a little bit older, I started to appreciate different songs, you know, like the, um, the one towards the end with Marianne and, um, the captain and all that. And I would always skip that one. I was like, can we just fast forward this? (laughs) Like, can we just skip this? It's so boring. And then, you know, I got, I got to appreciate it more as I got older and now I'm like, oh, it's my favorite. But as a young person, I was like 16 going on 17. Yes, that's the one she's, you know, in love, (laughs) young love and all that. And now I, now I have come to notice, especially this last viewing, I hadn't really thought about it before, but, um, the Baroness has grown in my esteem quite a bit. Hmm. Um, cause before she was such a villain and like, trying mm-hmm. to, you know, be there to sort of be the roadblock between the captain and Marie or whatever. But paying more attention this time, I feel differently about it. So maybe when we get to the Baroness, we can talk a little bit about that. But yeah. No, I, I do think that's interesting because when you first see them together, the, uh, the captain talks about how she's kind of his savior. So you do get the sense that she's been quite important to him, don't you? Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I can remember my first viewing of The Sound of Music quite distinctly, actually, because it was eight days ago. Um, <laughs> You've never seen it before that? Eight days ago was the first time I'd sat down to watch it from start to finish. Now, I always associate The Sound of Music. It's, it's interesting that you both talk about it as an Easter thing. It is associated with bank holidays here, but I don't think it's just Easter. Um, so I had seen a lot of these um, sequences I don't think I'd uh, ever sat down to watch the whole thing. I think if I was inside on a bank holiday when I was a child and the sound of music was on, it was normally a bad thing because it meant it was raining and I couldn't go out and play football, you know, that kind of uh, thing. So I always had that kind of mild antipathy towards it. And some of that lingered into adulthood, i got to say. And I know both of you had said to me about recording about the sound of music a while ago, and I was always kind of like, maybe one day. Um, so I'm glad I got over it because I watched it from start to finish a week ago and I liked it. I, you know, I, it held my interest for, I must say, I thought Andrews and, uh, Plummer were very good. I mean, the songs are obviously highly memorable. I think I knew most of the songs, um, anyway, just kind of cultural, um, you know, have that cultural significance beyond the, the film itself, don't they? 
But yeah, it's very lavishly made, very classically put together. I think there are times when it's very rousing. So I can see why this is a film that some people love to return to frequently, for sure. I I can understand why it's uh, irresistible to a lot of people. In some ways, I was curiously a tad unmoved by it, though. And I suspect a lot of viewers do find it very moving. So... Am I wrong to feel that way? Like, Sarah, you cry a lot. <laughs> Does this film make you cry? <laughs> I do cry a lot. Um, I don't. I didn't really cry, no, not in this movie. But, I mean, it is, it is, I do have fond memories that make me feel very sentimental about it. Like, in my wedding, my flower girl, I dressed her in a white dress with a blue satin sash on purpose because, you know, so I, I think about that every time I think about the song. Like, yes, that. I specifically wanted that in my wedding. And so I have very fond memories. I don't know. I can't, I can't recall crying though. Maybe at the part, you know, climb every mountain. When the, That's very stirring. Yeah, yeah. I think if, if that part is probably the one I get the closest to being misty eyed. Yeah. So I'm not usually a crier, I would say. But there were several parts. I'm going to try to remember them. I remember one of them, like, th- this time hit me. And it's when – it's more like the stirring parts or the parts that have to do with some sort of, like, overcoming or some sort of national pride or whatever. Um, but it's when they're in the rooftop cemetery at the Abbey and the mother abbess tells the captain and Maria that the borders have just been closed and they're discussing how they're going to get out of Austria. And the captain says they'll drive to the foothills in the caretaker's car and go over the mountains on foot. And Maria says, well, what about the children? And he's like, well, we'll be all right. You know, they'll be all right. We'll help them. And when Frederick, the oldest boy, says, we can do it without help, father, I just like started not sobbing, but my ear, my, my eyes got all misty and so forth. And just that idea that they're going to do this together and the kids are, you know, it's on board with it. Like they were all in on this decision that they had made. I don't even know how to express it. It just still kind of like makes me a little bit weepy now (laughs) thinking about it. Um, And some of the other things I think are the ideas in the movie. Like when Captain Von Trapp tells Maria about the telegram that he's received from Berlin. And, you know, and I actually, I remember when I was very little, my mom explaining that the Nazis would kill them. I'm like, that's a, you know, stark thing to explain to a child. But I think yeah. it was like a learning opportunity yeah. as well, you know. Um, but when he says, you know, that the, to resist, and they want him to be in the Navy of the Third Reich, you know, and he says like yeah. to resist them would be fatal for all of us, but to join them would be unthinkable. And it's like, but they came up with this third option. It's like, all right, we're going to leave our home and our country and all of this because we can't do either of these other two things. Mm-hmm. And it would have been very... I would think it would be tempting. I mean, you look at some of the other characters, you know, in the movie, like Max or like the Baroness, you know. And I do think that, you know, I think it's interesting that Sarah brings up some things about the Baroness because I do think that they ultimately are good people, but it'd be very easy to go along to get along, I think, if you were in that situation. And that they don't, I think, is very stirring. And it's kind of, it's, you know, it's that scene between um, the way Christopher Plummer and Julie Andrews play that. And then also just the implications that, that has some of those things make me get a little bit teary more so than it's a sweet song or isn't this romantic or whatever. Although I do think that that's stirring as well. So, so it's, it's more the thought behind it. That and like I said, the, the, the moment when Friedrich says that they can, the children can do this without help are things yeah. that make me, I guess, I'm more emotional in that way about it. Especially the end when the captain is singing Edelweiss and his voice mm-hmm. starts to crack. And it's just, oh, you can't even get through it. And, you know, it's just, 
it gets you every time. It does. Sarah, did you say one of your favourite moments in the film? I think you said it was your favourite moment in the film. Was it one of the things between the captain and Max? Yes, yes. Um, did make me cry, but... And it's one that I didn't actually appreciate until much later. And I didn't understand it as a kid. I just, I didn't understand why he was yelling. It's that scene where they're on the balcony or the veranda and and he's talking to Max and he gets the telegram from Rolf. And first of all, I love how he snatches it away from Rolf and then hands it mm-hmm. <laughs> over. And he's like, I'm not going to let you give this to him because it's, it's like an authority thing. And he's like, I'm the master of this house. You will give it to me. But anyways... Um, just everything about that scene. But then he goes, you know, um, Max is like, what's going to happen is going to happen. Just make sure it doesn't happen to you. And, you know, he just explodes. And he's like, I'm like, wow, I get it, <laughs> you know. And then another iconic moment is when he tears down the flag and rips it in half. Yeah. And that didn't make sense to me either. I mean, I just knew, I just knew as a young child, I knew Nazis equal bad and bad people and so i knew that he didn't want to take part in that i understood that much but just the symbology of it and the bravery of it is it's like really it's really cool to see that on screen i think with that scene it's i mean i don't want to get like too far <laughs> off the track but i think i was aware of what that was about or at least i remember being aware of what it was about but what i never noticed until like adulthood and probably until my recent viewings is that he's folding the flag up and when Max pulls up with the children, he puts it behind his back while he's talking mm-hmm. to the children. He hides it and then pulls it out and shows Max. And there's that little hint of skepticism that he's not sure that Max isn't responsible for mm-hmm. having draped it there. Um, but I noticed, I mean, as an adult, that he kept it away as much as possible from his children. Mm-hmm. I've also seen some speculation, uh, I was reading a couple of articles earlier, that possibly Max is a closeted Jewish character, which potentially puts a new spin on it. But I don't know if there's anything in the film itself that you can point to, but it seems like there are people asking this question online. I don't know. Oh, that's very interesting. Because that could put a new spin on why he wants mm-hmm. to just kind of get along, you know. And he, I mean, not. I don't, I wonder if that is, and I mean, this is going to sound stereotypical, so just, you know, I wonder if part of it is because he is in show business. And there is this idea, I think, of like the Jews as a, business class, you know, and entrepreneurial and so forth. And I don't know if that's part of that implication. And he does seem like he, I don't know. I don't know if this would necessarily have to do with him being Jewish, but I think that he seems like he is, there's almost something about Max that's like, it's hidden. It's almost like he's playing a court jester when he's really not. And that how it does, it does help him get along and kind of smooth things over to the point that I think that whatever setup they had at the festival that Max arranged and I think there's probably more than is overtly stated in the film that he did um, is what helps the Von Trapps escape. But I think he was able to use that persona that he has. So that I could, mm-hmm. I don't know. I think that's a really interesting thought. He has an interesting moment. I think it's when they're rehearsing, isn't it? Where doesn't he give the Heil Hitler, but he kind of rubs it's his like, nose or yeah, something. Yeah, so. yeah, he's kind of, it's very weak. And then he rubs his neck. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. I was, I was wondering what you guys think about the the main coupling really, because... I think what happens in a lot of Hollywood films, classic Hollywood films, in other genres, they're often focused on a central protagonist. So you get the cowboy hero or the gangster or whatever. But musicals are often quite different because they almost invariably involve a romance. 
Uh, so it's been called a dual focus narrative. What what happens is you alternate between two characters who gradually become a couple, and usually they have opposing backgrounds or some of something belief systems, and that sort of needs to be resolved before they can sort of come together. So it's interesting here, isn't it? You get quite stark contrast, don't you? Because he's a bit older, she's younger, she's quite exuberant, he's not, he's very reserved. He's organized and she's disordered. He's well-dressed, she's not. You know, they talk about the dress, <laughs> that, um, the poor didn't want it and all that. But you know what I mean? She's quite broad with her, some of her gestures. He's much more static. So it's a very interesting kind of setup, I think, Sarah, isn't it? Yeah, that's definitely standard romance fair there um and i like that you know he's with he's with the baroness and there's sort of an item and she's got all this money he's he's wealthy and affluent and so technically on paper they should work but they just don't (laughs) you know he's just he's just captivated by maria because she is captivating and I like how mature they are about mm. splitting and how it's a mutual decision and how uh, how self-aware the Baroness is. And I really appreciate her maturity in that. And it almost kind of reminds me a little bit of um, Nora Ephron, how she, in her movies, you know, Sleepless in Seattle and and You've Got Mail, how she, he, she has the two couples that should work on paper but they come to the conclusion together that they're just not meant to be together. And it doesn't mean they don't love each other. It doesn't mean they don't care about each other. It just means that they're meant for other people. And I've always kind of really been interested in that idea. And I don't know if it's because of the sound of music or, you know, that just got into my head somehow or, or what, but I, I really appreciate how the bareness was never really cruel to Maria. I mean, she sort of let her on a little bit and implied she never really said anything that wasn't true or anything. She's not, like, mean to her. But I think she said things that were obvious that scared Maria, and that's why she ran away. But, you know, the Baroness knew what she was doing when she mm-hmm. did that, she, you know. But yeah, um, it wasn't like a, a mean girl rivalry thing. Really, I did. I didn't get the impression like that, which I appreciated. It was it was more mature, and it it wasn't about the drama because I think it easily could have been a, a plot point to just be dramatic and and add in stuff that wasn't really necessary. But I'm glad that they took the route that they did. Would you go along with that, Marlene, on the on the Baroness? On the Baroness. Oh, so I, yeah. I think this is interesting. I. Um... Because I think they did add in a little bit of drama, but I don't think that it was overdone. And I think that it gave her, the Baroness, kind of a, a bit of a character arc, too. Because I noticed this time when um, the Baroness meets the children and Maria, it's when they're on the boat and they all stand up and fall in the lake and so forth. And the captain is furious, you know, and the children and Maria are coming in and Maria's like, oh, you must be the Baroness. And you can see her stifling her laughter, you know, like she's very amused by what's going on. So I don't think that there was some sort of ill intent on her part at the beginning but as it goes on i think that she's very aware that whatever whatever feelings the captain and maria have for each other are strong you know um whether or not they're aware of that and because you can kind of see her in different scenes like sort of looking back and forth between them so i think that there are 
bits where she becomes more and more jealous and she makes very snide comments at the party, you know, when she sees them dancing and so forth. So I think that it was a strategy that she had, like knowing, I think it was something that she had planned that she knew that Maria would want to leave, you know, if she said these things to her and she, you know, she goes on about how, you know, we're women, let's not pretend we don't notice or know when a man notices us. It's like, well, Maria doesn't come from that sort of knowing background. I mean, she might feel it, but she's not going to interpret that in the same way because she's not had that same life history, you know? Um, And then she goes, the Baroness goes back downstairs and says to Max that she's, you know, they're having champagne and she feels like celebrating and all of this. But I, I don't know. I think that um, Eleanor Parker played that really well because there's a sense of, I think there's a sense of guilt that she has, you know, that she knows that wasn't necessarily the the right thing to do, but she's still fairly pleased <laughs> that she's done it, you know. Um, but then that gives her that moment of redemption when the, she and the captain decide that they're not going to get married. And then there's, she pauses and she says, there's a young lady out there who I think will never be a nun, you know. So I think yeah. that, I, I don't know, I think she does have a full character arc. Um, there's a scene that's earlier on when the Baroness first gets there, though, that I think is really interesting. And it's a conversation that I hadn't paid too much attention to in the past. And it's when, because I just thought, oh, it's just a scene with the Baroness and the captain walking along and they have to be saying something. But really, like I feel like all of the dialogue goes towards something, like whether it is, you know, a precursor to something later or something in character development, because they're talking about how he's more at home at that house than he is in Vienna. And basically you know, in his natural habitat and so forth. And I think that that, I mean, that's very much something he has in common with Maria is wanting to be in nature and this kind of focus on nature. So I think that while it seems like the Baroness and the captain on the surface have much more in common, um, you know, there are these comments that he makes about being in Vienna. um, And it seems like it's a distraction, like he's going to these boring parties with these people that he can't stand and soaking himself in champagne. And it just, it sort of paints a picture of someone that's distracting himself from his grief really by going and having this high society life in which he doesn't belong but you know he's a baron although from what i've read it was from that was you know as a result of his military service and she's a baroness so it just it like sarah said it seems like on paper like that should work out but he has really in actual fact has much more in common with maria in terms of like the nature of the people that they are um and another thing that i had i thought about for the movie, but I think it's more implicit, but apparently it's more explicit in the stage play is that the Baroness is a character that I don't think like that would not have worked. She would not be climbing that mountain at the end to get them out of Austria. Um, And I think that in the stage play, that's more apparent from what I understand that she has various like interests in life that would have made her more, you know, willing to appease the Nazis basically. Um, I mean, not necessarily join them, but to kind of go along with whatever was happening in the country. And I think that that's a, you know, it's an interesting part of her character in the movie, but it's not really brought out quite so Mm -hmm. much. So that's another thing that never would have worked for Captain Von Trapp, but it obviously had to be Maria that was like the true partner because of that as well. And also because the the pattern that plays out with the Captain and Maria is to some extent they merge, don't they? Or they kind of trade outlooks because... It seems mm-hmm. like how vivacious she is kind of draws him out. So it's really mm-hmm. nice when he joins in the singing, for instance. Um, but then she also becomes more responsible, doesn't she? Because she's quite unruly at the start of the film. So it's like she sort of sort of acts out the qualities that he never displays in front of his children. 
but he embodies some of the things that she's kind of lacking in too. Mm-hmm. So I think that's part of yeah. why they sort of complement each other really well. And it, it's interesting to note too, Julie Andrews mentioned a couple of times in the book and um, on the commentary about how Maria changes after when she comes back from the honeymoon, her wardrobe is much more subdued and much yeah. more mature looking. She's a married woman. And mm-hmm. I think that they made a conscious effort to portray that and how she, you know, was more maternal and, and all that because she was before she was just a girl and she was having fun and she was getting the kids to have fun. And then now she's someone's wife. And <laughs> I love mm-hmm. that. I love that. Um, the line in the reprise and she's like, and lo and behold, you're someone's wife. And it's like just occurring to her. <laughs> like she's been married and on the honeymoon, but she's like, Oh, this is really happening now. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I like that moment a lot. I was looking at Christopher Plummer and I was thinking, is this man old enough to be retired <laughs> and have seven children? I think he was actually in his mid thirties, wasn't he? When the film was made. Um, and I think in the real relationship, there was mo- much more of an age gap, wasn't there between mm the real characters, the real people. So I don't know if I was just thinking about that because of knowing that Christopher Plummer has just recently died at the age of 91. And I'm, you know, for a long process of mathematics, I've deduced that he was actually in his thirties when the film was made. Um, I don't know. He, he does look older than that though in the film, doesn't he? he? He does kind of carry himself like a slightly older man, I suppose. I agree. Another thing I think, and this is another reason why I think I like the story and the relationship is that he acts like a man, not like a, a boy, you know, which is part of the era, part his life. And then I think yeah. the part, you know, just Christopher Plummer's portrayal. So I do think that he acts older than in his thirties, probably. And Captain Von Trapp mm. was older than that at that time, as you said. So all of that makes sense. So let me tell you a few of my favorite things. I'm not going to sing them though. I'll just, uh, just tell you. Um, <laughs> so like I said, I think seeing the captain soften was very appealing to me. So that scene when he hears the children singing, then he mm. joins in. Um, then Maria sees him singing, I believe, and the children are kind of stunned. I thought that whole sequence was one of my favorites. I also really liked the dance between Maria and the captain. I think it's the party sequence, isn't it, outside? The Lindler, I think mm-hmm. is what it's called, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, it seems like that's the scene where they recognize that the feelings are changing or have changed. But don't they say later in another scene that they knew they loved each other and they sort of pin it down to earlier than that, don't they? Mm-hmm. Um, but it definitely seemed like that scene at the time was the pivotal moment. Yeah, I think it's where they allowed themselves to realize that they were in love. Yeah. I feel like that scene, the dance, there's an entire story, like an entire courtship in that dance. And Mm -hmm. I think that Julie Andrews and Christopher Plummer really play that perfectly because just even the way it starts, it's almost, it's not casual, but it's just kind of in fun because she had been dancing with Kurt, you know, and he sees them like Kurt, of course, is a little boy. So they're, they're doing the like the turn or whatever, you know, and it's just sort of comical. And so he just sort of steps in and they're just dancing. And then it's like almost like they're just kind of having fun and they're enjoying this dance that they both know that's this Austrian folk dance. And then there's a moment, to me, it's the moment, I, I'm not exactly sure how the dance goes um, or what to call it because <laughs> I don't know anything about dance. But when um, they, there's a turn that they do and he has to, is it he has to reach back for her hand and then he pulls her around him. And then it's almost <laughs> like they have a look of like, oh, like there is something going on here, you know, and then it sort of builds from that. So it's almost like an entire relationship, I thought, built in that one dance. Mm-hmm. And then also just the way that it's filmed, like the scene good, early yeah. on when they have them, it's kind of like a, 
it's not looking directly down on top of them, but it's like sort of an angle from a high angle. And you see the designs on the floor and you see sort of the, like the backdrop. And then they're kind of going across the floor. So that was so beautiful, but it is like this little journey that they're on just in that one dance. Yeah. Just the camera work and how there's that one shot kind of low down and you just see them dancing across and it's Mm -hmm. like a painting and it's just so beautiful. And there's also a lovely shot of them in silhouette during a later scene, isn't there? Which mm-hmm. is, I think the scene where I, I mentioned where they talk about when they started to love each other. But there's a beautiful shot there of them in silhouette that I enjoyed. Um, one thing I liked, but I imagine people don't comment on that much, but I like the contrast of... So you get Maria with the children, which is very joyful and uh, energetic. And then when the kids are playing with the Baroness, it's just so muted. <laughs> that made me yeah. laugh, where they're kind of chucking that ball around. Yeah. And she can't remember their numbers, and yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they can't remember. It goes back to, I mean, I don't think they're necessarily being mean to her, but it reminds me of that early scene when they're talking about the pranks they would play on their earlier governesses, you know, because, like, mm-hmm. Liesl kind of chucks the ball right into her stomach, you know? Yeah. And it just seems like something they would do in their sort of more, um, what, impish or prankish yeah. days. <laughs> She's just clearly not enjoying herself at all. She's like the antithesis of Maria. She does not want to be there with these children. But yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's it's a fun scene to watch. Just yeah. how miserable everyone is in the whole scene. Well, that my other favorite moment, I think, was, I think it's around there, where Gretel says she can't sing because she has a sore finger. Yeah, oh, right. To be. So sweet. Right. And then she it got caught between Friedrich's teeth. <laughs> Friedrich's teeth. Yeah. It's a very impressive film, I think, visually. From the get-go, really. You get mm-hmm. all that beautiful aerial mountain photography. Um, but lots of things. You know, the interior of the Abbey. When Maria turns up at the Von Trapp home, she has a look around. So just to some of the backdrops throughout the film. You know, I think that, that fruit market, one of the scenes was set in, was very colourful, very appealing. Like the lushness and all of the nature, but then also the interiors, like the, ab- or not the abbey, the church when they get, well, the abbey as well, but the church when they're getting married is stunning yeah. too. You know, it's just all so visually appealing. I was just wondering how important this, that sense is to you guys, you know, it's a, this visual splendor, isn't it? And mm-hmm. it, how important is it to the enjoyment of the film? Because when you really boil it down, I can see how the sound of music could be cut down for a TV broadcast actually, because... In narrative terms, it takes its time, you know. It does. But I think a lot of those scenes that do take it do take their time are quite sumptuous to look at and must be a, a huge part of the appeal. But what do you reckon, Sarah? Yeah, I think, I mean, I love that it starts on top of a mountain and it ends on top of a mountain. Mm-hmm. And it's like the first time you see Maria, she's on top of a mountain. And the last time you see her, she's climbing the mountain with her family that she got. And I think that's so meaningful. So, like, just the majesty of the backdrop of the mountains and all of that. And I just appreciate how much thought went into just the sets and the lighting and all of that. Because, you know, when when we see Maria, she's on top of the mountain, but then she goes into the abbey and it's all dark. And everything is dark and drab. And I think, and there's that the line where she starts singing um, when she's leaving the Abbey. And so she's starting to sing, I have confidence and the sun hits her face, like right when she says the Mm. word future. So it's like the future is shining on her, right? When she says that and she walks out and then everything starts to get brighter as she goes along. And then, you know, she's singing this whole song as she travels to the house and, everything is just brighter and brighter and brighter and more colorful. And then when she 
gets the kids and they're out singing do re mi everything is just bright and beautiful and I love how that goes along and you just get to see a real sense of Salzburg and it's really incredible to me how they married up the two sets because they filmed a lot of it in Los Angeles on a soundstage and then they filmed Mm -hmm. a lot of it in the real location and you can't tell the difference. I mean, there's the one scene where they walk in in the beginning. She's like, we were outside in Salzburg and then we walked in the house and she was on a soundstage in Los Angeles. And the same with Liesl coming through the window. You know, it's just, it's phenomenal. I never would have Mm -hmm. known that. I never would Mm -hmm. have known that if I hadn't heard yeah, because I think I saw something. I saw something like Christopher Plummer. Uh, the film took a long time to make, but he only spent eleven days in the Austrian location, or something mm-hmm. like that. Is what yeah. I heard. Um, yeah, interesting, Sarah, that you mentioned Maria. So starting on the mountain, and that's how we leave her as well. And she also says, doesn't she, that the mountain led her to the Abbey as a child? I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting too. Um, Marlene, sorry, what are your thoughts on the visual kind of? Um, spectacle of it all. Um, I think it's a very important part of it. I think, you know, one of the things that I, as I recall, is cut for like the TV broadcast is some of the opening. And it could just be that I don't remember it being as long as it is until I see it again. And I think it's all very appealing. Um, But like those kind of scenes of going like over the high Alps and then sort of spring coming in and you hear the like little bird sounds turn into flutes and the music starting and so forth. I think that some of that might be removed because they don't, you know, they show the lakes and they just show a lot of nature and a lot of scenery um, that I think really is important to the movie. But I could see that that would be something that was not necessarily important to, you know, if you're clipping along at a TV pace, it's probably yeah. going to be something that's going to be cut. And this last time when I watched it, I thought, and I made a note of this, it's like, I think the early images of the lakes and the mountains and so forth are supposed to be images of like free Austria, because I think there's a great contrast. Like it's brought it a little bit in the movie between all of these aspects of nature and then this kind of idea of the Nazi war machine. And they even have, you know, I even like the, (laughs) like the way the titles are done and they have the, the title of like Salzburg, Austria in the last golden days of the thirties after they show, I think it's after they show the sound, the music title sequence you know mm-hmm. um and i really like the way that that's that that's done and it there is something almost golden about the way a lot of it is shot including that part um and i liked the way too even with like the title of the sound of music it's against this backdrop of this like sort of simple church on a hill and it's i don't know it just all it kind of all works out there are a lot of flowers and so forth so i think it's very beautiful but i think there's also a lot of contrast in it too um and I know Julie Andrews in the commentary track talks about, and some of the interviews she's done talks about these clouds that would show up in the sky. So it wasn't just bright and beautiful. Like it had this sort of like weight to it, but almost in a, like a, a stronger way is what she said. It gave it strength to some of the visual scenes. Mm. I also thought there was very nice sense of like rhythm and elegance to the musical sequences. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's in quite a restrained way. Like I think the first uh, rendition of Edelweiss you get an exchange of glances between Andrews and Plummer at the end of that, which I think is just impeccable kind of classical style filmmaking. But sometimes it's a bit more energetic. Like the Do Re Mi stuff, you get more of a montage, don't you, where mm-hmm. at one moment they're riding bikes and then the, the next moment they're on a horse-drawn cart or whatever it was. Um, so I really appreciated that, I think. What were the silly moments, Marlene? You mentioned that there are some silly um, moments. I mean, what one I... I don't know if this would be one of the ones you were talking about, but the only one that really jumped out at me... 
I think, was at the dinner table when the children start crying. I thought, oh, come yeah. on. You know, yeah, yeah. That would, that would be one of them for me. How about you? Yeah. Um, no, I agree with that. I hadn't thought about that one, but I do like when I see it, I think it's a bit much, a little bit much. Yeah. It doesn't distract me too much from the movie, but I don't think that those children would cry. I just, you know, like that. that yeah. all of them would cry out of <laughs> guilt of not making Maria feel welcome and whatnot. Um, well, so I'll start by saying, I think one of the things I like about this, like even as a musical is that it's most of the music is sort of natural to the story or it's characters that are singing to each other or like they, you know, they were musicians, they were a musical family and that's kind of what they did together, you know, and what they did as a career, you know, a way to make money for many years, like the actual Von Trapp family. So I think that a lot of that fits in and, or it'll be Maria, you know, comforting the children or teaching them to sing and these sorts of things. It's not always just, or often I should say characters that are just like busting out into song. Um, You know, like there's, I guess the thing like. I think of is that, you know, there's no like scene at the end. Like it's not like the Nazis and the Von Trapps have some big <laughs> musical number together and <laughs> then they separate or whatever. And it seems to me that a lot of musicals, it's like you get what you get from the song and then the part in between is not quite that much. And it's just again, like song, song, song. And I appreciate that the sound of music is not like that. However, the cut that makes the couple of times when they have something like that happen stand out to me. So one of them, one thing that I, I love the wedding scene very much, but I, think I would have chosen to not have them sing the vocal for how do you solve a problem like Maria while she is getting married because I love the processional I love that image of him standing there waiting for her like I really I really enjoy all of like the formality of that sort of like Catholic services and so forth probably from the sound of music I'm not Catholic so I presume that that sentiment in my life maybe has come from seeing it when I was five but at any rate I think that it's interrupted a bit by having them seeing how do you solve a problem like Maria in the middle of her wedding um and then the other one is the um the scene in the gazebo that you were talking about with the captain and Maria I think it's really romantic it's one of my few movie love scenes that I really do like quite a lot but I would just imagine in the middle of this love scene, like the moment when she starts singing. And I I think the song goes perfectly well after that, but there's just a moment when she starts singing that I I would think he would be like, what on earth is this? You know, like in the middle of this. (laughs) Yeah. You know, he's kissing on her and so forth. And she starts singing. Like it's a little something. I don't think they do it in a silly way, but there's a little something that's out of reality about that that kind of makes me giggle a bit when I see it. And then I get back into the mood of it. So a few things like that. I was going to mention, actually, when we were talking about Rodgers and Hammerstein earlier, that I think they were big pioneers of what, what's called the integrated musical, which is where dialogue alternates with song and dance mm. that arises within the context of what's going on. So in other words, there's singing where they should be talking and there's dancing where they should be walking, that kind of thing. Um, what do you reckon on that, Sarah? Silly moments? Do you, do you agree? Let's see. I'm trying to think of any that maybe you guys haven't mentioned maybe in the trees when they're, when they're hanging out of the trees a little bit Oh yeah. and they drive by and, and oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is very funny and adorable, but it's a little, tiny bit, tiny bit over the top, I think. But I do yeah, appreciate I that look that. that he, that he gives. He's like just a bunch of local urchins and he's like, does that double take? Um, yeah. That's probably one that I could, I could think of that always makes me go a little bit. Hmm. <laughs> but yeah. Um, I think earlier one of you mentioned differences between the stage show and the film. And one I had heard of was that in the stage show, 
the Reverend Mother cheers Maria up. So I think this comes after she's told that she's being sent to live outside the Abbey, being sent to be the governess. And uh, she cheers her up by singing My Favourite Things to Maria. And in the film, of course, Maria sings it to the children, which mm-hmm. probably works better, to be honest. I mean, I imagine. I imagine right. so. Um, had either of you heard any other di- big differences between... You mentioned, Molly, maybe it's less complexity with some of the political implications, I suppose. The other song difference, I think, was that Do Re Mi apparently was very close to the beginning of the play. So it's like Maria meets the children and then is singing Do Re Mi, and that's kind of how they bond, whereas they move it later on in the movie when she's teaching them how to sing. And that seems much more natural. Like, I could imagine that happening in someone's life, that they would, you know, teach these children how to sing and make up a song or whatever for Do Re Mi. Um, I mean, I shouldn't comment because I haven't seen the play, but that just seems too... Too music-y to me that she would show up, have this interaction, and then all of a sudden burst in. Again, it's another one of those bursting into song things is what it sounds like to me. So I think that was probably a wise choice to move it. And then the other thing that I heard was that they had written the song Something Good between the captain and Maria as a replacement for another song. But that was the song between them. And I think that that was probably a good choice. And one thing that was interesting about that was that when they're singing the song, like, nothing comes from nothing. It's apparently a reference to Shakespeare's King Lear. And I didn't know that before either. So I thought that was kind of interesting too. It makes me want to sort of learn more about that. Yeah. Um, And then apparently the Baroness and Max were singing characters and had their own songs in the play. Whereas in the movie, the music is kind of kept in the family and they are not singing characters, which I also think was probably a very wise choice. So I think, like I said, Oscar Hammerstein uh, died several years before the film was made. Uh, so Richard Rogers wrote two new songs for the film with his own lyrics, and I believe those were I Have Confidence in Me and uh, Something Good. Uh, and apparently Rogers was delighted with the film, which is nice to hear. Were there any, was there anything else in terms of sort of character moments or favourite moments or something before we move on? Because I know we want to talk about some of the, the history and things like that. Um, I, one, thing, one thing I love about Maria is that she always grabs her hair when she's fussed about something. And I just <laughs> love that character bit that she does. It's just really cute. And you, it's one of those things that's just very endearing, I think. When she gets overwhelmed or frustrated or anything, she just does that thing where she grabs her hair. I just really like that's, that about that's her. That's a great point. Yeah. I like some of Andrews's gestures like she well like seems to whirl that guitar case around that she yeah. carries at the start of the film and that yeah. kind of thing yeah she said that was because she couldn't remember the lyrics and she needed something physical to like do to help her give her an extra second to think of or to know lyrics. what they meant yeah mm-hmm. yeah that was interesting i remember that yeah um in terms of moments i like I, or I, I do like it. I think I used to appreciate it, but didn't like it. I like it now. It's a confrontation between the captain and Maria after the children have come out of the lake and he sent them inside to change and so forth. And it's kind of before he has that, he hears them singing and goes in. But when he's saying, you know, I don't want to hear this about my children or whatever. And she's like, I know you don't, but you've got to. And it's just the strength of that confrontation. I really enjoy that. I thought that was good. And they said um, in the commentary, Julie Andrews said that they rehearsed that quite a bit before they had filmed it and tried different things with it and so forth, which I thought was interesting. I think one of the things that's interesting is that this film very nearly never got made at all. So I think some of the context is that for a few years before The Sound of Music was made, um, the big Hollywood studios had been reducing the number of films they were making. But So the, the, the model at the time was put large sums of money into a small number of films. Mm-hmm. 
So you get a lot of epics around this time and going back a few years earlier. Things like Ben-Hur or the Ten Commandments, but also musicals. So the problem with that kind of approach is that when you get big productions that fail, um, I think Fox's Cleopatra is probably mm-hmm. the, the classic example, then it causes big problems. So 20th Century Fox was heavily in the red after things like, after particularly after Cleopatra. So new management comes in. Uh, Daryl F. Zanuck fired 2,000 people and brought in really strict economies. Uh, so his son, Richard Zanuck, was tasked with stopping almost every project. And he ran into an agent, a guy called Irving Lazar, who had originally sold the rights to The Sound of Music to Fox for just over a million dollars. And Lazar then offered to buy back the rights for two million. But for whatever reason, Richard Zanuck said no. His father decides to go ahead with the film, and it was so successful that it was a large part of returning Fox to profitability. And Daryl Zanuck apparently referred to it thereafter as the miracle movie, which is kind of nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like one, it is interesting. Like one little thing then kind of turns the tide, you know, yeah. and something gets made and goes from there. Um, so like I said, Richard Rogers was pleased with the film. He said, it's the most successful picture that's ever been made, and that's very pleasurable. It isn't just a question of money. What I enjoy particularly is what it has done for the unselfconscious people of the world. The self-conscious ones sneer a little at it. <laughs> it is sentimental, but I don't see anything particularly wrong with that. I think people have been given a great deal of hope by that picture. I like. I think that's an interesting idea that he talks about, the idea that the world is divided into self-conscious people and unselfconscious people. I, I think that's true of musicals generally. Do you know what I mean? I think there are people who put up barriers. Do you know what I mean, Sarah? Mm-hmm. Some people just can't handle the idea that somebody would break into song in the musical. Right. And or, can't get past you that, know, in their you know. kitchen while they're cleaning, like I was doing yesterday, just singing I Have Confidence all day long on repeat. <laughs> the top of yeah. my lungs in my house. <laughs> Marlene, you were saying that other times, you, maybe you're not the biggest musical fan in other contexts, though. So are you an unselfconscious person or a self-conscious um, person? That's very interesting. <laughs> I'm probably could go either way depending on I'm I'm not completely so self-conscious that I'm cynical but I don't think I don't know I could call it a preference like I I don't particularly enjoy musicals where it's just like people bursting into song and groups singing together and you know you have the what is it like the different families in West Side Story and they have this big musical like that kind of thing it doesn't seem I don't know it, it doesn't entertain me. I mean, I, I mean, I guess it does like in a light way, but it doesn't seem authentic, I suppose. I'm not sure exactly how to explain it. You know, it's just like the, the, the characters seem to serve the musical numbers, to me at least, rather than the other way around. Yeah. Um, and I guess I can appreciate some of the themes of these things and the relationships and whatnot, but it just doesn't seem to have the weight or the gravity that I see in something like The Sound of Music. So to me, like they've always been sort of, somewhat separate things like my affinity for that movie versus it's not contempt by any means, but I just don't (laughs) love musical theater, you know? Um, But I do, I was thinking about this earlier today. I think that, you know, there's a, the movie shows that there's a choice in how you see the world because I don't think that the Von Trapps either in the, you know, the real ones or the, as they're portrayed in this movie are naive at all, but they make certain choices on how they are going to, perceive the world. Um, some of that is like personality. Some of it, I think, is their religious um, perspective on life and on the world. Um, I don't know. So I think that that's a difference too. 
you know, you could be kind of self-conscious, but choose to see the world in a certain way that doesn't make it cynical or whatever. So I don't know. I don't think that's a great answer <laughs> to your question because I think I probably could be a little cranky about certain musicals or, you know, do a little too much eye rolling or whatever. Um, yeah, yeah. But this, to me, it's just like, I don't know. I do feel like I'm sort of outside of that perspective when I watch it. I do think it's like joyous and hopeful and all the stories you hear of people in terrible circumstance that have gained hope from it. I, I lose whatever self-consciousness I have about, you know, sort of being in love with a musical at that point, you know. Well, I think it takes a certain suspension of disbelief. And I don't, I mean, if you think about it, how different is it from superhero movies? You know, if you've got, on the one hand, you've got somebody walking down the street and they just break into song. And then, and you know, a Marvel movie, you've got superheroes just using superpowers to blow stuff up. It's, it's, mm. what are, I mean... It's not all that different, really. Mm. That's interesting. It's all enjoyable if you let it be. <laughs> no. I think it's the high drama that I associate with musicals. And maybe I'm wrong in that. But I don't, you know, I, just the heightened drama of everything being like loud or big expressions and so forth. And I don't think the sound of music does that. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's the emotional difference. Because I don't, like I said, I don't have anything against musicals. It's interesting that you mentioned West Side Story because there is another comparison which is that Robert Wise who directed this film and he's an interesting director because he his output was very varied so he won an Oscar for this film and The Sound of Music of course won Best Picture at the Oscars he also he co-directed West Side Story with Jerome Robbins and he also won an Oscar for that but he made all sorts of stuff like The Day the Earth Stood Still the sci-fi classic and um, The Haunting which is a, a very well regarded horror film Star Trek The Motion Picture so interesting figure I'd like to know more about him someday you know um one bit of trivia I just wanted to point out, because I, I, when I watched the film for the first time eight days ago, like I said, <laughs> I wondered why we didn't hear the 20th Century Fox drum roll at the outset, you know, the fanfare that you normally hear. Do, do you know the reason for that? I don't. I feel like I should. Right. It's an interesting one. It's also the case with the film versions of Oklahoma and South Pacific, I can tell you. And the answer is that Richard Rogers did not write that piece of music, so he didn't want it included. So it kind of speaks to Rodgers and Hammerstein's dominance yeah. <laughs> over their output, you know. Um, but yeah, just it is interesting. Mm -hmm. Christopher Plummer also had an interesting relationship with the film. I don't know if either of you have heard kind of his opinion on it over the years. I've heard con not contrasting, but sort of a softer and a harsher opinion from him. It changed a bit over the time. Yeah. yeah. What I heard is that he often referred to it as the sound of mucus. <laughs> mm -hmm, I've heard that. <laughs> Apparently said that acting with Julie Andrews was like being hit over the head with a Valentine's Day card as well. But they also seem to be good friends because they... He seems to adore her. Yeah. In the interviews I've seen, you know. I feel like he's a very sarcastic type of human because there was a comment that I, I made me laugh on the on the commentary where he was talking about the children. He's like, those little monsters. And he kept calling them monsters. And he's like, but they were adorable. But then they had to go to school and like, yeah, damn them all. I was all. terribly fond. They were so professional. But it's like, they're like, damn their hides or something yes, like that. <laughs> I think it was with a very, uh, you know, a very fine kind of sarcastic fondness that he was saying that. I didn't get the impression that he really truly felt that way. <laughs> but maybe, yeah, maybe that was... Maybe he's just very yeah. sarcastic and grouchy. I don't know. <laughs> and I, well, that's yeah. why I, the he was grouchy sometimes and then not at other times. And I wondered mm -hmm. if he might be like at times one of those sort of self-conscious people that Carl was mentioning in terms of like, you know, can't like it too much. Don't want to seem sentimental. 
Possibly, because I pulled out a couple of quotes from interviews uh, with him. So 2010, uh, the interview was in the Boston Globe, and he said, I was a bit bored with the character, although we worked hard enough to make him interesting. It was a bit like flogging a dead horse. And the subject <laughs> matter, <laughs> he said, though, the subject matter is not mine. I, I, I mean, it can't appeal to every person in the world. It's not my cup of tea. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, that, that makes sense. Uh, then 2011 to The Hollywood Reporter, he said he thought his part in The Sound of Music was the toughest thing he ever did. And as to why that was, he said, because it was so awful and sentimental and gooey. You had to work terribly hard to try and infuse some minuscule bit of humour into it. It's a very good picture for what it is, but somebody had to be Pex Bad Boy, and I chose myself. So I'd never heard the phrase Pex Bad Boy before. I don't know if either of you have. Apparently it dates back to like the 1880s or something. So he's kind of showing, it, showing his age, you know. Mm-hmm. It's Pex Bad Boy is anyone whose mischievous or bad behaviour leads to annoyance or embarrassment. So Interesting. Then, though, I read a 2015 Vanity Fair interview with him and Julie Andrews, and he seemed much more positive about it. He said, well, actually, it's kind of a nice uh, change compared to the films that are made today by Hollywood, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So maybe it just kind of ebbed and flowed over the years a bit, you know. That's what it seems like. And there was something that he had mentioned in the commentary um, track of the movie about the captain that he had apparently met his... Um, his nephew, who said that his uncle was the most boring person he'd ever met. Yeah. I was like, well, that's kind of cr- a cranky thing to say. But then in another interview, he says that he wanted to make sure that the captain was like had some sort of like irony or humor in the character. And he said because he knew the Baroness, he knew Maria von Trapp, and he's like, she would never have married a dull person. And so it's like he it's almost the opposite of what he just said. He's like because of her humor and her naughtiness and all of that, like she wouldn't have been married to someone that was dull. So I don't know if he just thought the character as written or, you know, maybe in the play was was dull. I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, it does he does seem to kind of shift back and forth a bit on it. Yeah. It was particularly sad I thought to hear about his death earlier this year, you know. Because I mean ninety one is not a bad age to get to, of course. But the thing is he was still very active. Um, mm-hmm. And doing very good work until, until you know, I think 2019, the last films I've seen him in, you know. So yeah. it's kind of a, I don't think you can be shocked, Sarah, can you, when someone dies at the age of 91, but very sad. Yes. It's hard to say that it was shocking, but it was disappointing and sad because those kind those kinds of legendary actors, you feel like, and kind of it was Sean Connery too, is they're yeah. just so much a part of your life experience Mm -hmm. and you know as a movie lover um you see them over and over again in the different points of their lives because you know sound of sound of music christopher Plummer, is so different from knives out christopher Plummer. it's hard to imagine them as the same person because they're just captured in time that way so they seem kind of timeless and immortal on screen and you feel like as a real person it's hard to believe that they would actually be gone from the world you know Mm. yeah i think he had had i haven't seen that many of his films to be honest but i think he had sort of a renaissance in his career a bit later on as well that had lasted until his death yeah because he became this is in 2010 uh at that time the oldest person to win an oscar for acting so the film was called beginners i I haven't seen that film i believe it's about a man who comes out as gay late in life and he won Mm. best supporting actor for that he's actually just been supplanted by anthony hopkins about a week ago as we record who's just won best actor at the age of 83 so um that statistic has fallen but then he became the oldest person to be nominated for an acting oscar in 2017 uh plumber 
for the film All the Money in the World. That was the film where he replaced Kevin Spacey late in the day, oh, right. and they reshot it with Christopher Plummer as his character. Um, and like Sarah says, uh, Knives Out then, uh, 2019, I think. So yeah, still a very present figure in film culture up until the end of his life. So it just almost felt like he had more to give, you know? Mm-hmm. Do you think Sarah's right, Marlene? I think that some of these people that you see on the screen, they kind of become part of the tapestry of your life in certain ways, you know? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I would, you know, I'd have to trace that to the sound of the music for Christopher Plummer. But I, I there's a... I, a timelessness about him and it's certainly about that character and the story and so forth. So I think that it's just as, you know, most people, like you said, you knew the songs, even though you hadn't really seen the movie, that type of thing. It's just kind of part, it is part of the fabric of the, like the culture, but then also just, you know, life or your idea of life, I guess. And it makes him a real person too, that he died, you know, rather than just sort of this spirit of Christopher Plummer or the legend or whatever. Mm. Okay, so what about the real history of the Von Trapps then? Because I'll confess I knew very little about this as a true story until I, after I'd watched the film and read a few articles. But I know both of you were keen on, on talking about this aspect of it. So I don't know, how much do you think it's a simplified uh, telling of the tale or from what you hear? Um, you know, Sarah, what have you picked up? Um, well, I, I had known a little, very small amount. I know Marlene has a lot more information on that, but just what little I know um, is that they, the family landed in Vermont finally, and they toured the world as the Von Trapp family singers, just all different countries and finally built their homestead in Vermont. And it's still there. You can, they have, you can go visit and sing with the real Von Trapp grandchildren and great grandchildren. And it's like a resort family resort in Vermont that they own. And one day, one day I want to go there. Yeah. So, yeah, but it's, it's a fascinating story. And, um, I think Marlene has a lot, a lot more to say about it, but yeah. <laughs> Take it away, Marlene. Then. Well, well, I think like, the, <laughs> the, the one, um, I think like the one major difference is that they compressed, like where we have arrived at the Ron Trap household, I think in the late twenties and then, and married the captain, you know, within those early years. And it wasn't until, of course, like 38 that they left Austria. Um, but I think they condensed that, you know, for the story. Cause they don't have like 10 years go by of just life in Austria, basically, yeah. and all of the things that they were going through. So they, you know, made it so that Maria arrived, um, you know, in the mid to late thirties, I guess. I think it's interesting. I started rereading the story of the Trap Family Singers. And I think that even from, uh, not that far, through it, but even in that early bit of the story, it's interesting how a lot of the, I don't know, a lot of like the tone of the story and a lot of the things that are sort of factual are like the spirit of it is kept in the movie, yeah. even if some of the details are changed. I think like some of the things with the relationship with the captain aren't exact, but you sort of it's the same sensibility. Um, one thing that I've I read in the book and then I've heard in some of the interviews with the Von Trapp family is that they said that their father was very loving and they had fun with him and so forth. And he wasn't this sort of stern, you know, I mean, he was kind of discipline oriented or order oriented, I think, but he was still very warm and loving the whole time. He was just sort of a sadder person, I think, before Maria came along. But he wasn't this, you know, like a martinet or this kind of authoritarian yeah. person. They sort of amped that up a bit, I think, for the movie to give it a little more of a conflict. Um, you know, which I guess 
some of the children in the family apparently didn't like, but they've gotten over it. You know, I think it's a good story, but they were, you know, said that their father really was never like that. Um, A lot of the things to do, like the escape scene didn't happen as it, as that turned out, they took a, I think a train from, you know, near their house to Italy to leave on a concert tour and just never came back. And they said, though, that the border closed the day after they left. So that's, so I mean, pretty dramatic. that's pretty close to not being yeah. able to get out of your country, I think. And then um, the part about, it wasn't just that the captain wouldn't join the Navy of the Third Reich, although he was, I think, what was it? He was invited to be um, a submarine base commander in the North Sea for, you know, for the Nazis, and he refused. And then the other thing that one of the, was one of the, um, the children, the captain, Captain Von Trapp and Maria had three children of their own, in addition to the seven original ones, you know, after they married and so forth. And it's one of those, the second, you know, little set of three that said that they were invited to sing um, on the radio in celebration of Hitler's birthday, as, you know, and represent all of Austria doing that, and they refused. There was some other story I'd heard about, like one of the older children that had been in med school had already gone through med school by the time this happened because of course like they were older you know than the children in the movie by this point and it was something to do with like the the jewish med school students or doctors were already like they were, i don't remember if they said they were disappearing but they were being like put out of work and that type of thing and he had opposed that so it was at least three things that they had done that put them on hitler's radar and so they knew they had to leave which i think is true to the spirit of the movie even though they kind of condense it just into the the one thing with the captain being offered the commission in the Navy, you know, so mm. I feel like that's pretty accurate. Um, there's a, a lot of things like that where, you know, they, they made it more, I guess, like a little bit more Hollywoodized, but I don't think that they necessarily like really violated what actually happened in the story. It's, it's equally, I think it's equally interesting. Yeah. Story. And I, I did hear that um, they handed the keys over to the house to the religious order. And so mm-hmm. they, it had been that for a while before it became one of the commander's offices. And they were even talking oh, right. about putting the train underground from the main train station to the house so that Hitler could come and go in secret. I don't think that ever actually happened, though, but they had mentioned talking about it. That was so interesting, too, because they said that the house, you know, they handed it. They took um, character of Max is kind of he's the person that gets them involved in music, you know, professionally in the movie. But um, in the original story, apparently Captain Von Trapp had moved his money that he'd inherited from his first wife, like a lot of his actual wealth came from his first wife, had moved it from Lloyd's of London, which is very secure, into a small Austrian bank to sort of show faith that Austria wasn't going to capitulate to Hitler. And then, of course, the bank went under and they lost all this money. Um, and so they started taking in renters, basically, or like, you know, at their house. And one of them was a seminarian that turned out to be this. Um, priest that was very involved in music. They ended up taking him with them when they left. I kind of forgot where I was going with this. <laughs> Sorry. That's all right. But they they did they did change the oh at the house right the so they house. yeah they asked yeah. the archbishop if they could take this guy with them this priest with them Maria and Cap- the captain asked them that and and they agreed so he like in all of the pictures they show of the von Trapps in America there's this priest with them and like that's the guy. But in, yeah, they handed the keys to the religious order, like Sarah said, and what was, I guess, the captain's study from what I've read became Heinrich Himmler's office, mm-hmm. where he would, you know, sign execution orders and do whatever it was that they were doing, and Hitler would go out there. And then in 1948, after the war, wasn't it 1948? They got the house back, 
and they sold it to the um, religious order. So that area that was Himmler's office is now a chapel. So it's kind of, it's a good coming back around, but it's a rather dramatic story. I was looking at a history.com article about The Sound of Music earlier. And I think the main one they point out is that in the final scene, the Von Trapps flee Salzburg and hike across the mountains to Switzerland. Um, had they done that in real life, they would have crossed into Nazi Germany, not Switzerland, <laughs> which was 200 miles away. And apparently uh, Maria Von Trapp said, don't they know geography in Hollywood? Salzburg does not border on Switzerland. And Robert Wise, the film's director, replied, in Hollywood, you make your own geography. There you go. <laughs> That's interesting. I knew that Hitler's camp was like on the apparently on the other side. They'd be marching right into it if they had kept going. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it reminds me of I don't know if you've seen the film Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, but in that film, oh, have they I arrive... seen that movie? Carl. I haven't. Yeah. Oh my gosh! <laughs> so right, they arrive at Dover, and Robin says that it will take them till nightfall to get to his father's castle. So Robin of Loxley. So that's five hours by car, but apparently they're going to walk there <laughs> in the same day, yeah. and. In a, in a following scene, they go to via Hadrian's Wall, which would have added, would have added like 300 more miles to their journey. But anyway, anyway <laughs> we'll, 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 go, we'll go past that. Um, no, there is an idea that um, one of the books I've been looking at this week, it's called The American Film Musical by uh, Rick Altman. And he says that musicals have an imaginative geography. And he points to The Sound of Music's final scene as like the, the clearest example of that, you know. But it's actually a wider characteristic. Um, what else did they point out? I don't think a lot of these things are that egregious, though. Like Things like the names and ages of the real children being changed mm-hmm. doesn't bother me. But mm-hmm. although apparently the oldest... So in the film, the oldest is Liesl, right? But there was one called Rupert in real life who was 27 by the time the family fled Austria. But I don't think that matters a great deal. Maria was a tutor to one Von Trapp child, not a governess That's to them all. Thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And that one apparently... She's in some of these interviews that I've watched, like when she was 95 and is still going strong. And I guess the reason Maria was her tutor was because, wasn't it because she had like a weak heart Scarlet, from Scarlet, Scarlet Fever? Scarlet Fever. Mm-hmm. Which is how her mother, her mother had died from Scarlet Fever, his first wife. And she couldn't go to school with the others. So they brought in. Maria. She ended yeah. up 95 plus years old. At least, right. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. And it, yeah. one thing they said, um, I think it was Johan was the youngest. And he said that they had the whistles and that Maria, mm-hmm. the the one that was 90. The um, daughter. Who's the daughter? Yes. Not yes. Maria not Von, Maria. Yeah. yeah. There's also a daughter name. Yeah. Yes. So Maria too. <laughs> she she um, knew all the whistles, the signals. She knew all the signals. For the kids. Yeah. For the kids. Because they had done, they had used that technique to call each other across the house, but they didn't march. He's like, we didn't march like that but we did yeah. have the signals <laughs> and she remembers all of them still <laughs> that was fun. funny very yeah fun. it seems like a very fun family to be a was part of the real maria how much like julie andrews was she because i'm sure i've seen an interview with julie andrews where she says actually the real maria was quite a hefty woman is <laughs> i think the phrase she used um I, I, I think the real maria in this in the book in her book she said that she had she was saying something, it was something that was like very feminine or frilly that someone in the Von Trapp house had, like the housekeeper. And she said that she was sort of taken aback and she described herself as having like a masculine mountain climber's heart or something because she grew up, you know, climbing through the Alps and being a tomboy. And I think that she was maybe not critical of Mary Martin, but didn't think that she portrayed her in that as, as she really was and thought Julie Andrews maybe came a little bit closer, was still a little bit maybe too dainty in parts. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I, but I think like some of the things like Sarah was describing about her like flourishes and her, you know, being more bombastic earlier in the movie probably was pretty well, pretty accurate for how Maria would have been, yeah. you know. I don't think she was a wallflower by any stretch yeah. of the imagination. I think in order to take over a family of seven and have three more children, you have to be a sturdy, hardy kind of, you know, disposition. You can't be a pushover. You can't be flighty about anything, you know. You can still have fun, but still be disciplined. So I feel like maybe they were a good match for each other in that regard, that they were, you know, a disciplined family. And to travel all around the world like that, too. With with, ten kids. With ten kids. That's a lot of work. You you can't be, you know, you got to have a certain way of doing things. Got to be organized. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Commanding. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to pick up a bit on this idea of The Sound of Musical as a, like, a really durable classic, you know, which we've kind of alluded to already, but very successful when it first came out. Apparently people were going to see it like dozens of times in some instances, you know, it's original release. So it's released in 1965. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that original release didn't finish properly until 1969. <laughs> Incredibly. I heard um, that. That's astounding. If you think about it, like in today's or any time since then, you know? Yeah. And I believe still one of the you know, highest grossing films of all time once you adjust for inflation. But you both have indicated to me, I think, that it's particularly associated with Easter in the United States. Is that right? And like, why would that be? Because there's nothing in the film that would encourage that, is there? Is it just television broadcasts? I think, I think so. It's, yeah. I mean, I think, yeah. I guess just like the sort of, I could see thematic similarities. I don't think there's anything about it that's necessary. I mean, it's very, you know, like we talked about, like the scenery is very verdant and green and mm-hmm. spring light and so forth. And um, I guess like the sort of, sort of this redemption theme, I guess, to me is makes it appealing for Easter, you know, and it's also sort of a, a family story of a family. So I, it goes along with it, but I don't think there's anything. I mean, there, there's no big like Easter hug, hug <laughs> Easter egg hunt, <laughs> you know, yeah. singing scene or anything that would be directly related. I, I guess I've seen it at Christmas too sometimes, but I think it's more Easter. Mm-hmm. I just remember Easter weekend. It was always the sound of music and the Ten Commandments on TV mm. and it's, they're just connected in my brain because of that reason. It was always, you know, the sound of music Thursday and Friday, the 10 commandments Saturday and Sunday, Easter weekend. That's just what it was. Yeah. It's just when they had it on. It is. a. I mean, it's not overtly, well, it is overtly religious. I mean, it's a movie like a Hollywood movie, but there's, a, you know, I mean, she's a nun. They're, an observant Catholic family, and a lot of that is sort of woven into their story, I think. So that kind of makes sense that it would come up um, at the time of a you know particularly Christian holiday. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've also heard that there are Sound of Music like sing-along screenings in more recent years. Um, Julie Andrews was talking about it in the Vanity Fair interview I read. She was saying, and I'm not, I'm not sure she'd like drop by one of these screenings necessarily. I'm, I think it's something she, somebody told her, but <laughs> twirled said, onto some, the stand. Yeah, some, somebody went to one um, painted all in gold, and like, well, what what relevance does that have to the sound of music? But isn't there a line in Do Re Mi? It's like Ray, a drop of golden sun. And mm-hmm. that, that was a person's uh, rendition oh, they of came it. As the, okay. Interesting. Yeah, they came as the drop of golden sun. All right, so. We've all done a bit of like background research this week, haven't we? Like you mentioned commentaries and so on. I've read a couple of books. Well, I haven't read from cover to cover. I've had a look at a couple of books about musicals and things like that. 
Is there anything else, Sarah? I think you read one particularly artistic book, wasn't it? You yes. Us about? It was Tell called um, My Favorite Fangs. And Fangs. Yeah. It was a story of the Von Trapp family vampires. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it was very different. <laughs> it was, I should, I, yeah, I, I got about 10 pages in before I had to put it down. I made it 10 full pages, but it was, it was a very interesting book. It's a novelization. So, yeah. So are we, the, the word cash in springs to mind for me. Is that, is that what we're looking at? <laughs> yeah, it just, yeah. it was a lot to, to, um, to take in. It's one of those, you have to read a page at a time and put it down and walk away for a minute, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. How about was... how about the Julie Andrews memoir though? Was that, that I imagine that's uh, yeah. That's it was much more palatable <laughs> um, to hear about um, all of her adventures and her stories. Um, you know, she talks in detail about that. And um, one other interesting thing that I've heard her mention before is that. Um, the reason Maria's hair is so short in The Sound of Music is because of Mary Poppins. She had to have her hair short for the wig in Mary Poppins. And then they bleached it. Um, and it got a little bit fried on the ends. So they had to cut it even shorter for that. But she said that that helped her characterization a lot to get into the mode for Maria. Um, so I, I think that was very fortuitous that that happened. But yeah. Yeah, because... um. So was Mary Poppins unreleased when she started work on The Sound of Music? That must have been mm -hmm. a chronology, I think, because right. it took them a long time to make this film. So, yeah, I think I think 1964 had been a big year for musicals because Mary Poppins and My Fair Lady were both very successful. And you also had stuff like um, Viva Las Vegas and A Hard Day's Night the same year. Um, Marlene, do you have any recommendations, whether it's reading or listening or things that you've watched? Um, I know you mentioned the Julie Andrews podcast, which you very much liked. I, yeah, it's a podcast um, from the Academy of Achievement. It's called What It Takes, and it's a 2018 interview with Julie Andrews that goes through her, you know, she talks about her, basically her childhood and her upbringing and this kind of like vaudeville, you know, career that she had early on that I wonder how much of that sort of like led into the roles that she does, like how she portrays characters and so forth too. That was interesting. But she's just, you know, it's delightful to listen to her talk about her life or career Um I think she's very, she's unique. And I think she brought, I do think she brings some of that to the Zona music because she's very feminine, but she does have that kind of like strong, you know, sturdiness at the same time. Um, and I have the sense that she, you know, she sounds sort of sophisticated, but she's kind of down to earth. And then she also, I have the feeling that she could probably be one of the few people that could be kind of body without being vulgar, you know? Yes. And absolutely. I could see some of that maybe coming into her portrayal of Maria just a little bit. Didn't they mention about how they would play cards and she is like, some of the jokes were very naughty that we told. Yes, very naughty. <laughs> and they'd be like drinking the schnapps from the farmer that yes. worked in the field when they were waiting for the weather <laughs> to clear and they'd, you know, form their own little, you know, singing groups and so forth. So she, she seems like someone that could have a good time with and just about anybody. I love how she's able to put such a positive spin on everything. And mm -hmm. you just know there's more there 
there's more right. to it than what she's saying, but it's very clear, you know. Right. But it's yeah. not that kind of like annoying Pollyanna right. no. denial of reality. It's just, you know, mm-hmm. this yeah. happened and it, it was just terrible, but we got through it. You know? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. She's like, yeah. yeah. So funny. She's amazing. Um, so, yeah, so that and then the the story of the Trap Family Singers, which I read when I was little. My mom had gotten, I think, a paperback copy of that book at a garage sale. And that's the the story, you know, that Maria Von Trapp wrote about her family. And I did um, heard one interesting thing about that, that apparently when they were touring, when the Von Trapps were touring after they had immigrated to the United States, I guess there was a concert when like some of their instruments maybe had been left behind or they, they had to wait at any rate for, you know, something like for the, you know, these lost instruments to show up before they could begin their show. And so to entertain the audience, she just started telling these stories about her family and um, a publisher, I guess, like the from Lippincott, was in the audience and talked to her afterwards. Like, if you can tell stories like this, then you could write a book. And so that's how that entire thing got started. And so that is the the book, which I have found very captivating. I mean, I, I see Julie Andrews and Christopher Plummer in those roles when I'm reading the book. You know, because you kind of can't help that. But it's it's equally compelling to the movie, I would say. So I would yeah. recommend that. Um, so I would recommend uh, the book is Frederick Nolan, The Sound of Their Music. So the story of Rogers and Hammerstein, that's good stuff. Um, I just read the chapter that pertains to the sound of music, really, but looks good. I also had a look at a book called um, Free and Easy, A Defining History of the American Film Musical Genre uh, by Sean Griffin. Very accessible, I thought, and a good overview. So I picked up some context here. So a couple of things. On Julie Andrews, first of all, so... There was actually quite a strong British emphasis to the 1960s cycle of musicals because you had things like Oliver, which was a largely British production. Uh, there were pop stars like Petula Clark, who was in Finian's Rainbow and uh, other films and other stars uh, from Britain. So Andrews, of course, being one of the primary ones. Um, I think the other big musical star of the 60s who came along was Barbara Streisand. Now, Andrews, associated with wholesome values, yet... I think what's good about The Sound of Music is, like I said, I, I think I used the word unruly. She did have that unruly disposition, didn't she? So she could play characters who were free-spirited and strong-willed, I think, is, is what sort of happens. Mm-hmm. In this book, what the, the author suggests is that while Julie Andrews and Barbara Streisand drew a lot of women to their films, the flip side is that they tend to dominate their male co-stars quite a bit, which may have driven away some of the male audience. Um, and also, I think Andrews in particular is not really positioned as um, sexualized in her best-known roles. I can kind of see what he means about them dominating the male co- co-stars, because I think when you think of Mary Poppins, you do think of Andrews. I mean, you think of Dick Van Dyke because of his jaw-droppingly awful accent, I think, as well. <laughs> but she, she does command the screen, I think. Do you know what I mean, Sarah? Yeah, and I mean, she's Mary Poppins, so she's in charge of everybody, it just makes sense that she is going to be dominating the whole family because that's what she came to do. And then with Maria, she does take a stronghold over, you know, the kids first, and then she wins over the captain by being a strong female. I mean, she tells him in that scene after the boat, she really, you know, lets him have it. And it works. So I think I think Julie Andrews just nobody else could do that but her. 
I think. I think he was. She was well matched though by Christopher Plummer mm-hmm. in his portrayal. Yeah. I think he's. Equ- that's. I think part of the appeal to me is that he's an equally strong character. Like neither one overwhelms the other one, and it could have easily been that her character could have been very dominant. I think, but I think that his, you know, that character and the way Christopher Plummer played him, really did make it this kind of combination of equals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like strong equals, not you know just kind of middle of the road. Like they were very strong yeah. personalities. I think Audrey Hepburn was one of a name in the frame at one point for Maria, and I can see that. But I think Andrews was the one, wasn't yeah. she? To be yeah. fair. So, um, just before we go, I think it's worth talking a little bit about what happened after the sound of music because it's an interesting point where the musical sort of starts to fade away a few a few years later, or the the, the classical style musical does. Um, so the sound of music's a big success. So then Fox planned. A big musical every single year. So Dr. Doolittle, 67. Star with Julie Andrews in 68, which went on to be a big uh, flop, actually. Hello, Dolly, 69. Also had other studios doing films like Oliver uh, and Funny Girl. It kind of, they kind of go out of fashion, though, which is interesting. And what, what uh, the author of this book puts it down to is that, well, several things, but popular music had kind of changed. Whereas previously, like musical tunes have been dominant in America's popular music scene. Obviously, you have things like rock come along. Uh, and by the late 60s, you've got album-oriented rock, which is kind of dominating the charts, and show tunes are more on the margins. Although I believe the Sound of Music soundtrack was a huge, uh, huge hit. And I think a lot of reviewers felt, you know, they kind of came to be a bit disdainful about musicals because they were just seen as kind of passe, you know. And I think something like the Sound of Music had actually had kind of a mixed reaction from critics, I believe. I mean, I had to look at a few. You do get some very positive reviews of the film from the time, but there were some reviewers who just really didn't like it and i think also at a time of cultural upheaval there were people who thought that you know because musicals are so escapist in nature that they really had nothing to say about the big issues of the day i don't know what do you think about that marlene because obviously it is quite a nostalgic approach to sounds of music takes doesn't it so is it allowing you to kind of revel in quite a simplified version of the past i don't so this maybe this goes to both sides of that argument but in one of the little features I had watched with there was interviewing um, the Von Trapp children and grandchildren. And one of them said that a man, like this kind of, you know, rugged sort of man told him that he had watched The Sound of Music. He'd gone to see it the night before he shipped off to Vietnam and that he would think back on, and it gave him, you know, some sort of uplift. And that he, when he was under fire, you know, in Vietnam, he would reflect back on the movie. So I don't know if that's escapist or if that's something that's, you know, helping him see the, you know, better side of the future, maybe. I don't know. So I, I think it's, in some regards, a fair criticism of, of musicals. Um, I don't know. I think there's always a place for that, though. Not always a place like in the what's current, but I think there's always a place for that kind of escapism. And I, I don't know. I don't think The Sound of Music is just escapism, though. Yeah. I think that it has affected, you know, real people in their lives and the decisions they're making and that type of thing as well. So I think it's a kind of a, a hearty combination of both. And I think musicals often, even where it wouldn't seem to be the case, I think you can sometimes kind of objectify real world problems through them. So one one of the examples mm. I always think about is um, Meet Me in St. Louis, which 1944, I believe. But there's, the narrative's kind of about displacement at a time that would have resonated during the war, even though you not, wouldn't necessarily think that, that it would. Um, I think actually part of this, what this guy is saying in the book is that actually a lot of the musicals of the late 60s were very popular, or a lot of people went to see them. 
Um, but what happened was that budgets were ballooning. None of the later musicals were able to match the Sound of Music success. And then Hollywood had a pretty disastrous year in 1969. So a lot of old executives were kind of swept away. Conglomerates took over. And fairly or unfairly, a lot of the blame fell on musicals. And that's part of the reason why the older style of musical went out of fashion. So it definitely seemed to go away for a while, didn't it, Sarah? But it's nice when you get a modern musical too. They sort of come back and... I mean, Grease, Mamma Mia. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. They've had quite a renaissance, I think, in the 2000s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's always fun just to kick back and throw on a musical and just enjoy something for a little while, you know? I'm having no problem with escapism, especially yeah. these days. I have no problem with that. Just forget about your life for a while and sing a song. That's so funny that you mentioned Mamma Mia because that that's I have the opposite, the movie Mamma Mia. I have the opposite feeling about that in some ways than The Sound of Music. Like, I really, I don't like it, but every once in a while I want to see it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'll yeah, rent it and watch exactly. it. And I'm like, God, that was not... I don't like that. But then I know that later, like a few, a couple of years down the line, I'm like, God, I really just want to see Mamma Mia again. And I know that I don't really think it's great or whatever, you know. So it's, yeah, yeah but it's just, there's something about that type of thing that, you know, maybe you remember the, the positive parts of it or remember the, go the sing joy with all of the your, songs. Yeah, just um, go sing with all the girls and jump off a dock, yeah. you know? I mean, right. there's nothing wrong with I that. Think <laughs> the scripting, I think, like it's when Carl's talking about the musical. I mean, I'm sure that obviously there's going to be brilliant script or not. There's going to be a, a change in, you know, cultural preferences and so yeah. forth. But I think that the way that the story is told and the script really does make a huge difference. And if that's in the background, that's probably all the better. I think one of the things the guy in the book, the guy, the guy who wrote the book, Sean Griffin, was saying as well was that um, sometimes people have too limited a view of what counts as a musical. You know, mm. like does mm. does Eight Mile count as a musical? You know, for instance, <laughs> you know, the Eminem film, maybe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he was talking about how the um, the integrated musical sort of fell away. Um, yeah, Mamma Mia. I don't know. Maybe you re- just repress. You know, Pierce Brosnan's singing Marlene. Maybe <laughs> just kind of comes back. Um, I didn't like Mamma Mia, but I thought Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, was actually a solid improvement. I've got to say. Oh, okay. I haven't seen that because I, I haven't again, seen I don't... it either. Yeah. Have you not really? Okay. <laughs> well, I think, you know what happened? I think that I was enthusiastic when it was coming out. I was like, well, I'm going to go, I'm just going to watch the first one again to get ready for it. And I watched it. I was like, I really don't like this. <laughs> so I ended up not seeing the second one. But I'll probably do the same thing like later today. I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and watch Mamma Mia so I can watch that second one. And I'll be like, I really don't like it. It'll be the same. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, both. I think the time has come to say so long, farewell. So um, before we do, though, where can we find both of you online? What are you up to? Sarah, what are you up to? Uh, I am over on Twitter at Sarah L. Blair, and I'm on Instagram at author.sarah.blair. So you can um, also hear me over on the Xcast uh, as a host. So that's fine. We just about to wrap up season six. Right, Carl? And um, good times over there. And yep. yeah. Yeah, and the X-Cast, for anyone who doesn't know, is all about the X-Files, the great, great series that began in the 1990s. Um, I'm sure Marlene would agree about that. Yes, and I'm sure there's some similarities that we could pull out between The Sound of Music <laughs> and the I'm online. I'm, on, I'm not online as much anymore, but I'm right now, but I'm on Twitter, Marlene Stimmy, yep. and um, on Facebook also, I think it's Marlene Stimmy mainly in some discussion groups on various TV shows and movies. 
Great. Cheers both. Really enjoyed talking about the sound of music with you. I'm very glad I finally got over my childhood hang up and actually sat down to watch the film. I've got to say, enjoyed it much more than I expected to. So that was nice. Um, you can find me on Twitter at CKJ Sweeney. You can find the Movie Palace at Movie Palace Pod. We'll be back soon with another new episode. So stay tuned, listeners. But that's all for today. So I hope you can join me next time when the curtain rises once again at the Movie Palace. Elsewhere on We Made This. Back to the decade. And then, yeah, like you said, uh, Dom Toretto responds with, Your mistake is thinking you're in the United States. This is Brazil. And then everyone points their guns at him. Great plan. Quite a scene. I love all the guys with armor and tanks are like, Hey man, it's Whispers to the Rock. This is a lot of heat. We should get out of here. Get out of here, man. Oh, man. Cerebral Jukebox. I think as I've got older, I don't care what people think of my music taste anymore. I'm happy to admit that, like, I really missed the boat because, like, in the 2000s, I was moody, angsty teen, and I was to Papa Roach and Lincoln Park on, a, on the daily. And I'd be ashamed to admit that I kind of like Savage Garden and Craig yeah. David, and I had this very strange diet. But now I go back and listen to all these, like, 2000s UK garage tracks, and they were absolutely astounding. Life's milestones. So when I met my wife, we couldn't decide who should go first for having kids. We knew we both wanted to. And so we kind of were up for playing a bit of Russian roulette. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. We also, in Canada, we get a year of maternity leave when a baby is born. And so we wanted to each have a baby so that we could have a year together with our whole family and just like get to know each other. And so we opted for that and we found a a known donor that was willing to provide us with some sperm and we both got pregnant around the same time and our babies were born 25 days apart. (laughs) With the same donor? Same donor, yeah. Does that make them twins? We call them twiblings, twin siblings. Brilliant, brilliant. (laughs) I love this. (laughs) Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This podcast network. Hello, everyone. This is Tony, network chief of We Made This. As you know, our podcast network brings together a brilliant assortment of talent who talk about all kinds of pop culture content, such as the episode you've just listened to, or maybe you're just about to listen to. We're not going anywhere, but we'd love to keep the lights on for even longer if you're able to support our network on Patreon. For just £2 a month, you get your name in lights and the satisfaction of knowing you're helping us produce more great audio. And for £3 a month, you'll get your name in lights, but you'll also get access to an exclusive bi-monthly podcast from the We Made This talent pool on podcasting, pop culture, and, well, you tell us. We'll take your suggestions. For less than the price of a coffee per month, you can help keep We Made This going. Just head to patreon.com forward slash we made this. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash we made this. And get the ball rolling. Now, 
back to your scheduled programming. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC.